No joy like hearing the people of God sing the gospel of God to one another. Thank you, Woodlawn, for the way in which you so joyfully sing the truths of God's Word. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me this morning to the book of Exodus. If you're visiting with us today, it is our habit to preach through books of the Bible. We believe that the Lord has spoken equally through each of these books, and if we want to know who is God, then we must give our attention to the reading and preaching and teaching of the totality of God's Word. And so we go back and forth between an Old Testament text and a New Testament text. And then with inside those two Testaments, we vary the type of genres of Scripture to which we're giving ourselves. So we are in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 5, the very end of Exodus chapter 5 this morning as we continue to make our way toward this ultimate promise of God to bring about redemption for the nation of Israel. Here in Exodus chapter 5 and verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 13, we see that God has revealed His character and His past acts. God has revealed His character and His past acts as a means to encourage our faith when we face moments of difficulties. The nation of Israel continues to face a moment of difficulty as she stands before Pharaoh seeking to be delivered, seeking to go to the wilderness and to worship before God. And we've already seen this narrative. The Lord in Exodus chapter 3 says to Pharaoh, says to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, let my people go. Moses does that. This is the narrative that we've been chronicling in chapter 4 and into chapter 5, and Moses' plea before Pharaoh does nothing but increase the difficulty of the nation of Israel. They're not given freedom. They are given further difficulty. And in our text this morning, as the nation of Israel continues under this moment of difficulty, the first thing we see here at the conclusion of chapter 5 and verses 22 and 23 is Moses questions God's Word. Moses questions God's Word. Look how Moses does this beginning in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why in the world? Moses exclaims, Did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. In Exodus chapter 3, in verse 8, the Lord had already spoken to Moses. And hear what God had said to Moses in chapter 3, verse 8. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites. And the Lord continues to reveal this land to which he is going to give them. You can imagine yourself as Moses. The Lord says, go to Pharaoh. I'm going to give freedom to the nation of Israel. I'm going to bring you to the land that I've already promised to your forefathers. 
And you've got to think that in the back of Moses' mind was this scenario in which he would stand before Moses. Moses would hear the divine name of God, Yahweh, and he would fall in submission, and everything would be glorious. They would make their way back to the promised land. It would be a wonderful trip, a trip that we could all dream of, and that would be the narrative. But there's a problem. Moses has done as the Lord has commanded. He's gone before Pharaoh. He's made a plea. And what does Moses' plea get him? Further difficulty, not only for him, but for the nation of Israel. And look at whose feet Moses cast the blame. To whom does Moses blame? God. Lord, why are you you bringing about this evil on this people? He says this to God twice. Lord, you're bringing this great evil against this people. It wasn't evil that the nation of Israel was anticipating receiving from God. It It was his blessing. But one commentator noted, God's timing only sometimes coincides with our expectations. God's timing only sometimes coincides with our expectations and his, <clears throat> and his idea of hardships we need to go through only sometimes coincides with our idea of how much we can take. But see, friends, God has never given to you and me a promise that he will only give to us what we can bear. For friends, left to ourselves, there is nothing we can bear. But God has promised us that whatever he brings about in our lives, he will never leave us nor forsake us. And Moses, in this moment, and we must be honest with our own selves and with, and with one another, we have all faced a moment in which we feel as though God has forsaken us. How do you respond? Moses responds by questioning the very word of God. God, you have said. It reminds us of that text from back in Habakkuk chapter 1 as the nation of Israel was facing intense persecution. And Habakkuk, on behalf of the nation of Israel, cries out to God. And he makes this incredible declaration against the law of God. He says it's as though the law of God is paralyzed. Habakkuk was questioning the very power of God's word. Moses is questioning the very power and veracity of the word of God. Will God be true to his word? 
as Moses questions the very word of God, we notice in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6 that now God is going to respond. But I want you to notice the way in which God responds in this text as he responds in three ways to the nation of Israel here. First, God reminds them of his past promises. God reminds them of his past promises. Look in verse 1. But the Lord says to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Go back to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 19. The Lord is reminding Moses of this past promise. The Lord is reminding Moses of what he has already communicated to them. Chapter 3, verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a what? By a mighty hand. Now the question is raised from the text in chapter 3, verse 19, as well as in chapter 6, verse 1. By whose mighty hand? What mighty hand will compel the freedom, the redemption of the nation of Israel? God is saying to Moses in this moment of difficulty, Moses, be reminded of my past promises to you. And by the way, this is a narrative that unfolds throughout the totality of the text of Scripture. Whether in the Old Testament and God having to continually remind his people through his prophets of the redemption that he was going to provide to them in a Messiah, or the Apostle Paul having to write to the church at Thessalonica as their hearts were unsettled because of family members who had trusted in Christ and they were anticipating the return of the Lord Jesus Christ but Jesus did not return until their loved ones had died, and they wondered about the promises of Christ for them. And so Paul writes to them to remind them of God's past promises. And God's past promises lie in the truthfulness of Jesus' resurrection. It is the truth of Scripture that God is continually having to remind you and me of His past promises as we face moments of difficulties. But notice how God also responds here in verses 2 through 5. God reveals His character to the nation of Israel. God reveals His character to the nation of Israel. Look what the Lord says. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, as God Almighty. And our English Bibles, the majority of our English Bibles, next translates this statement, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I think we could also translate this Hebrew poetry and this parallelism that is taking place in verse 3. And by my name, I am the Lord. 
Did I not make myself known to them? A rhetorical question the Lord asked. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. God reveals his very character and nature to the nation of Israel by this designation of his name, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And notice what the Lord is doing here. He's showing that this same God who stands in this moment of difficulty with the nation of Israel is this same God who has continued in continuity with the nation of Israel even as we go back to the very beginning in the book of Genesis chapter 1. For in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2 and in Genesis chapter 3, we see that God has revealed himself through the text of Scripture as Yahweh, as this covenantal God, as this relational God with his people. And God is wanting Moses to know that even at this very moment, the God who created in the beginning, the God that gave the promises to Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17, is the same God who stands with you in this moment of great difficulty. For as Scripture would go on and say, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is unchanging. Unlike the gods who ruled the nation of Egypt, and they had a plethora of gods, over 2,000 gods with various different names, Yahweh is distinguishing himself from these gods who have been created by the hands of mankind. God is denoting himself as one who has always been from the beginning. So Moses, I am the Lord, and I have appeared. This isn't a new revelation. This isn't a new communication. I have appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I appeared to them as El Shaddai, God Almighty. There are six references in the Pentateuch to El Shaddai. All four of those, are, all six of those, are in relationship to divine speech as it relates to God's promises to the patriarch, and not only God's promises to the patriarch, but specifically God's promise to the patriarch and land. We see twice in this communication, this revelation of of God as El Shaddai, and then in four other cases, we see this revelation in the speech of the patriarchs themselves. I'd like for us just briefly to look at two of these examples that reveal God's promise to the nation of Israel as the one who is almighty and the fulfillment of that promise of God Almighty to give the nation of Israel a land for herself. Look with me in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. Genesis chapter 17, and then we'll come back to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 17. Verse 
Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, who appeared to him? The Lord. Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant with you between you and me and may multiply you greatly. And goes on and gives this incredible promise of land. Then come to Genesis chapter 35, verse 11. Genesis 35, verse 11. And the Lord said to him, I am El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The Lord is saying to Moses again, I am this one who has revealed myself to your patriarch, to the patriarchs of your fathers. I am the same God. I am walking in continuity with you. There is no change in who I am. But then notice this parallelism and this poetic expression of this revelation of who God is. Many of our English Bibles translates it in the following. But by my name, Yahweh, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, if this translation is correct, I suggest to you this morning that we have a little bit of difficulty. Is this the first time that God has revealed to himself as Yahweh? Is this the first time God has revealed himself as Yahweh to his people? Have we seen this revelation of God as Yahweh before now? Or we might ask it this way, did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... Did any one of those patriarchs know God as being Yahweh? Let's look at the text of Scripture just quickly together over the course of a few verses. Go with me all the way back to Genesis. We're going to primarily look in Genesis at these texts of Scripture this morning. Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. Genesis chapter 4. Verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh, the Lord. Genesis chapter 12, verse 8. Genesis chapter 12, verse 8. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of Yahweh, the Lord. Come to Genesis chapter 13, verse 4. To the place where he had made an altar at first and where Abram called upon the name of 
the Lord. Abram called upon the name of Yahweh. Look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 7. Genesis chapter 15, verse 7. <clears throat> this is in relationship to God's covenant with Abram. And he said to him, that is, Yahweh said to Abram, I am whom? I am the Lord. I want to take a time out just for a moment and speak to you on a conversation called textual criticism. We've had this conversation before. We've talked briefly about it. You will note from time to time in your Bibles as you're reading along, there'll be an asterisk or maybe a number that gives you a reference that causes you to look down at the very bottom of your Bible, and you might see a note that says other translations, and it'll give you a different translation. Or you might see a note that says other translations omit this word, or perhaps omit this text of Scripture. So as we think about textual, criticisms, you, textual criticism, you understand that the Bible in which you and I hold in our hand today comes to us not as one given text. In other words, we don't have the original Pentateuch. You can't go to Egypt today, sorry, to Israel today and to the Israeli Museum, for example, and see the scroll that Moses wrote the Pentateuch upon. You can go, however, and see various fragments, various sections. You remember back in the 50s when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the late 40s and then unearthed in, throughout the 50s, and you had numerous copies or fragments of the text of Scripture. There was in that collection of Scripture an entire scroll of the book of Isaiah. As it concerns textual criticism out of Germany in the early 1900s, you had a hypothesis that was put forward when higher criticism began to take a look at the text of Scripture to undermine its authority, and it was postulated this theory called the documentary hypothesis. And what the documentary hypothesis did was undermine the well-established and confessed truth that Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. Jesus himself understood Moses to be the author of the Pentateuch, and so this hypothesis looked at the Pentateuch and concluded there had to be at least four editors that at some point wove together the tapestry of these texts of scriptures. So at some point you had a copyist, you had a theologian, if you will, who preferred the name of Elohim, hence you have E. Or J in the German would be our Y, the Yahwist. You at some point had a translator, uh, an editor who preferred to use the divine name of Yahweh. And so what you have, according to the documentary hypothesis, for example, is certain sections of the book of Genesis that we read just a few moments ago that had this revelation of God as Yahweh. You had the Yahweh who wove those texts of scriptures in. But one of the primary texts of scriptures upon which the entire documentary hypothesis hinges is here in Exodus chapter 6. Because there seems to be, at least in English, from a translation, 
that the text of Scripture is saying that God is making this claim. I've never been known by Yahweh before. Well, if that translation is correct, then perhaps it leads credence to this documentary hypothesis whose foundation is the undermining of the truth of the text of Scripture. But I propose to you this morning that what's taking place here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a a piece of poetry. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 1 through 9 is a piece of poetry that has parallels that are going back and forth with these with these revelations, so you have this first parallel, I am El Shaddai. And paralleling El Shaddai is also this revelation of I am Yahweh. So verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, as God Almighty. And my name is Yahweh, did I not make myself known to them? It's a rhetorical question that God is asking Moses. No, this is not the first time that God has revealed himself as Yahweh. The text of Scripture, we've already looked at it from Genesis, reveals on numerous occasions this revelation of God as Yahweh. No, there aren't four or five or six editors who have woven together the text of Scripture. We call the Pentateuch. Moses is the author of this text of Scripture. Moses is confessing. God is confessing to Moses that this God known as El Shaddai and Yahweh is the one that has always been with his people. It's a revelation of the very character and nature of God. And then look what he does in verses 6 through 8. He promises redemption. The very heart of the Exodus narrative is woven in this text of Scripture. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you up from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into a land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am Yahweh. The Lord, through this text, uses the language of redemption for the nation of Israel. And friends, this is the language of redemption that Pastor Laramie read from us from the, from the very beginning of our worship service in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the exact same language of redemption that Moses, is use, that Moses is uses, is, uses in Leviticus as he unveils this holiness code. And what is the reason that, that Moses can unveil this holiness code for the people of Israel and demand and, ex, and expect their adherence to it? Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44, 45, and 46, 
because the Lord is the one who has provided redemption for the nation of Israel. He is holy, therefore you shall be holy. He is a savior, therefore he has a right to demand and expect of our lives holiness with an outstretched arm. God has brought his people up out from the land of Egypt. God reveals himself to the nation of Israel as being a redeemer. God has been on a journey of redeeming mankind all the way back from Genesis chapter 3. And this same God, friends, this same God who gave the promise to his people to provide redemption in the Old Testament is the same God who provides a promise to his people that he, re- he will redeem them in the New Testament if by faith they would trust and believe in him. The same God that was, re- that was redeeming the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is the same God that is redeeming a people for himself today. God has provided this incredible redemption for you and me through the sending of his son Jesus who provides the perfect redemption, redemption from sin. For see, friends, the greatest need of the human heart is redemption from sin. Your greatest need today is not a new job. Your greatest need today is not a raise at your workplace. Your greatest need today is not to find just the right boyfriend or the right girlfriend or the right spouse. Your greatest need today, college students, is not making straight A's. Your greatest need today isn't the perfect wife who says yes, sir, to everything you say. And your greatest need isn't a husband who works out at the gym five days a week and can be featured on the front of any magazine that features the health of men and has a seller job that brings home seven, eight, nine figures. Your greatest need and my greatest need is redemption from sin. And I want you to see how Moses bookends this section of the narrative to emphasize exactly who God is. Go back to Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, what? I am Yahweh. And look at the very end of verse 8. I am Yahweh. He begins with a revelation of God's character, and he concludes with a revelation of God's character. And everything in between there 
reveals to you and me something about who this God truly is. This God is one who stands from the very beginning. This God is a God who lives in covenant relationship with his people going all the way back to Exodus chapter 15. This God is one who has promised his people redemption. This God is a God who has promised his people a land. My friends, there's a sense to which this narrative has been fulfilled for the nation of Israel. There's a sense to which this narrative has been fulfilled for you and me. And there is a sense to which this narrative has not been fulfilled for you and me. For we still wait the final culmination of this prophetic promise from God. We've not yet reached the land. We've not yet reached Canaan land. To Canaan land, I'm on my way. We are still on a journey, just like the nation of of Israel, where we have heard the promises of God, and in some measurable way we've experienced the promise of God, but we have not yet experienced the fullness of the promise of God, and the experience of the fullness of the promise of God to those who by faith have trusted in Jesus is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We still await that prophetic fulfillment. Jesus is coming again. And guess what happens when Jesus comes again, friends? We'll join him in the promise of the fulfillment of land. For we will join with Jesus for an eternity, living out the promises of Isaiah chapter 11 or Isaiah chapter 63, as we rule and reign with Christ for an eternity upon a land with a king that he has promised. Will you be in that land? Will you inherit this promise from God? Say, Pastor, how in the world do I inherit that promise? How is this promise true for me? Friend, this promise can only be received by faith and hope and trust in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we, you and I, apart from Christ, are sinners. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what do we earn because of that sin? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. What you and I deserve is not the promised land of God. It's eternal damnation and judgment from God. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friend, the way in which you experience that eternal life is by confessing Jesus as Lord. For the Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you shall 
be saved. If you've never trusted in Christ, we plead with you. We urge with you. Trust in Jesus. Believe in Christ. Confess your sin. Throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus. But for you, believer, for me, are you longing for this land? Are you looking forward to this promised land? Do you have the same sense of hope and urgency that the nation of Israel had for this promised land? May God refocus our mind's eye and our heart's affection away from the pleasures of this world and toward that one pleasure who can only satisfy Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He is Yahweh. But notice how this narrative concludes beginning in verse 9. An apex occurs in verses 1 through 8. And then we have Brother Moses again. Negative Nancy, we might call him. Can you imagine the Lord reveals himself to you? He tells you exactly who he is. And here's Moses' response. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I, am uncircum- for I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now don't miss this moment of redemption tucked away right here in Moses' complaint before the Lord. Moses sounds a whole lot like many of us, does he not? Yes, Lord, but. I know, as we sung earlier, every promise of your word is true, but. Right now, I just can't see it, thus it must not be. Look at the problem of the nation of Israel, verse 9. Moses spoke to the people. He goes back, evidently, and tells them. But they're not listening to Moses. They're like done with him. Why? Because they have a small spirit or a broken spirit, and they've endured under harsh slavery. We sang, prone to wonder, prone to leave the God that we love. We too, like the nation of Israel, from moment to moment, from time to time, have a small spirit. We don't always hope very well. We don't always trust very well. We don't always believe in the promises of God's Word. And for sure, as we noted last week, and to here the text seems to indicate, they fall under their circumstances. And yet God continues 
to pursue his people. Moses is going to complain to God, I just don't believe. I'm not the right man, God. It's the same song and dance, is it not? Moses has already said this. Lord, surely you've got the wrong person. But notice at the change of the language, don't miss the promise of God and Moses' statement of unbelief. Listen at how the language changes. You'll remember chapter 3, chapter 4. What was Moses to go and say to, the, to Pharaoh? What was he supposed to say to Pharaoh? Okay, let my people go how long? A three days journey, right? Let us go out to the wilderness. Give us a little reprieve here. Let us go worship the Lord in the, in the wilderness. But notice the language of hope tucked away in the complaint of Moses. Verse 13, but the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And what was the charge? To bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. There's no qualifier there, is it? Just a three days journey. No. Tucked away in this moment of disbelief. Tucked away in this moment of uncertainty, of hopelessness, is a statement of great hope. What is God going to do for his people? He's not going to bring them into the wilderness for a three days journey. He is going to provide ultimate redemption. He's going to provide ultimate salvation. He is going to bring them completely out of the land of Egypt. He's going to bring them completely out of their bondage. And friends, this is exactly what God does for you and me through Christ. He provides complete and total redemption. Not three days worth. Not six days worth. Not 10 years worth. Not 50, 50 years worth. Not 400 years worth. God, through Jesus, provides an eternity worth of redemption through faith and hope in Jesus. Friend, if you're here this morning, and you're buckling under the weight of your circumstances, would you look to Jesus today? Would you look to Christ today and allow him to provide you an eternity of satisfaction? Believer, if like Moses this morning, you have your eyes set only on your current circumstance, would you look away from there? And would you look toward Christ and there have your hope and your faith renewed? Let's pray. God, how we thank you for the revelation of your word. How we thank you, God, that you are one who is continually 
revealing yourself to your people, making yourself known, providing redemption. We thank you, God, how even this day, for us, you are still providing redemption. Friend, would you take a few moments where you're seated and reflect upon the preaching of God's word? (coughs) Have you trusted in Christ today? Perhaps you're here today and you're far away from God. You're far away from God because you've never repented of your sins and turned to Christ. Would you do that today? Would you trust in Christ today? Believer, would you renew your hope in God today? Would you hear this God who is continually revealing himself, reminding us of his past promises, revealing himself through his word, revealing himself as redeemer? Would you ask God to grant you the hope of eternity? To renew the joy of your salvation? That Jesus is coming again. And when he does, the culmination of his promises to his people of land will be finally fulfilled as we rest with him for all of eternity upon the land that he has promised in a new heaven and a new earth. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. Friend, if you're here today and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. Please feel free as we sing to come forward and either one of us would be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come forward and talk to one of us. Please feel free to turn to someone seated next to you. For there are plenty of people around you, beside you, in front of you, behind you, that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, perhaps you would like for one of us to pray with you. That the truths of this text of Scripture might also be true in your life. That the hope in this text of Scripture might be your hope. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed it upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, may our responses be pleasing to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?